the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, broken shards of 2018 reassemble momentarily for a final push against the present, but are repulsed by the baby army of tomorrow in a bloody battle we call the present difficulties. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we have an interview with David Drake talking about his new entry in the Time of Heroes series. It's called The Storm. This is the sequel to his book The Spark, and it's set in a far future where humans inhabit many worlds, but the path between them has been shattered and in fact the technological civilization that preceded the one that's there now has been shattered and they have returned to a somewhat medieval level of development but there are lots of old things around from the forerunners the days before that are technological but that seem magical in a way and some of the people are genetically equipped to handle them and as David will tell you it's based on the way that Europe felt after a couple of hundred years after the Roman Empire fell and, and people saw all these artifacts and didn't know where they came from or what this golden age before was but could use some of them and they had to rebuild a civilization. In this case there's lots of cool science fiction stuff like power shields and swords. This is part one of a two-part interview that I had with David out at his place. I want to thank him and Joe for their wonderful hospitality and having me out to record the interview. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. Now here's the news. Hey, we have a couple of new trade paperbacks out in January. Now these trade paperbacks are those books that are the size of hardcovers, but should be used to squash mosquitoes and houseflies, not rats and larger vermin. Or in the case of David Weber hardcovers, bear and oxen. Anyway, the January trade paperbacks include Crimes Against Humanity by Susan R. Matthews. This is a new entry in Susan's sprawling dark science fiction under-jurisdiction series. This is a far-future star empire that has been totalitarian in nature using a special cast of torturers. They're called Inquisitors to enforce the uh, so-called peace. But now things are falling apart, and our hero, former Inquisitor Andre Kosciusko, has had a hand in the crack-up as he's come to terms with getting out of his former occupation. And now he's trying to do a little penance for his past indiscretions in wild gone-beyond space where he's a doctor. But there are bad guys in Gone Beyond to deal with now, and there's the need of a capable guy like Andre to help out. One good guy sheriff type, the Langserix Hilton Shires, has forged a coalition to bring the worst of the Gone Beyond criminals, slavers, to justice. The criminal cartels that have profited from the freedom of Gone Beyond for so long aren't having any part of it, and they know the key to taking down Shires is to get rid of a renegade fleet inquisitor, Andre Kosciusko. But where can they find an assassin with a moxie to disappear Andre? Many have tried, none have succeeded. Also out is Divided Allegiance by Elizabeth Moon. This is a new edition of the second novel in Elizabeth Moon's great Paxanarian high fantasy saga. 
It's got a brand new introduction by Elizabeth herself, by the way. Years with Duke Phelan's company taught Paxinarian weaponry, discipline, and how to react as part of the military unit. Now, against all odds, she is accepted as a paladin candidate by the Fellowship of GERD. But before she is fully trained, Pax is called on her first mission to seek out the fabled stronghold of Luap, far to the west. Crimes Against Humanity by Susan R. Matthews and Divided Allegiance by Elizabeth Moon are now available at booksellers everywhere. As the Polish say when they cross the Kirkinosa Mountains, check that out. <laughs> This is part one of a two-part interview with David Drake talking about his book, The Storm. Part two will be available next time on the podcast. I want to welcome Dave Drake to the podcast once again. And we are in the house of Drake today, as a matter of fact. It's we are amazing. Um, at, at the dining room table. Uh, David Drake was attending Duke University Law School when he was drafted. He served the next two years in the Army, spending 1970 as an enlisted interrogator with the 11th Armored Cavalry in Vietnam and Cambodia. Upon return, he completed his law degree at Duke and was for eight years assistant town, assistant town attorney for Chapel Hill, North Carolina. He's been a full-time freelance writer since 1981, which would be the bulk of your career now. Well, both of my life, actually. Yeah. His books include the genre-defining and best-selling Hammer Slammer series, the nationally best-selling RCN series, and the Time of Heroes series, which we'll talk about today. Um, the first entry in that was um, the Spark. Was the Spark, and the Storm is now out of booksellers. Um, Dave, before we go on, I was we were just discussing your motorcycle uh, <laughs> little tete-a-tete with with destiny uh last year last year now um yeah. can you tell us a little bit about that because it was um i mean i, I can't imagine i can only imagine it has affected um a bit of your writing at least your schedule this <laughs> year. destroyed my schedule and, and i do apologize for that i i have continued working but um i'm not working at full speed well i, I think i'm probably up to speed now but it happened before I'd finished taking notes for the next book, and um, which is an off-trail RCN, by the way. Um, is it is Alpha Tree coming back, or is it or something else? Uh, no, th this is completely different. These are new uh, people entirely, a new situation entirely. Uh, I, I'm very likely going to return to a direct sequel to Though Hell Should Bar the Way, but I wanted to do something different. And the problem is, as I was in the process of trying to set up this new different setting, and I'm, I'm making hand gestures, which, you know, isn't going to do a lot of good for you out in the, the radio audience or computer audience, but um, I was pulled up at a traffic light in Carborough. This was, you know, I, I go you in daily. near Chapel Hill, North Carolina, which is what people would know. Or yeah, yeah. Carborough is a bedroom community for Chapel Hill. Yeah. And I 
go through Carborough twice daily, uh, to and on weekdays, to and from my post office box in Chapel Hill. And I was pulled up at a light behind a, an old Jeep Cherokee. And I heard a, <laughs> a screech of brakes behind me. And I thought, oh shit, I'm dead. Uh, it just screech! Turned out that the woman who hit me uh, had had this car for about three months. And she said, the brakes were always funny. And from listening to it as it was approaching me at 20 miles an hour, <laughs> uh, basically it was fairly, it was a 2013 car, which meant it was not terribly old, but it had no brake pads. Yeah, well, that's it, the classic sound of the Yes, yeah, steel on or, steel. Yeah. Steel, yeah, absolutely. And she... <laughs> Hit the back, I heard a loud bang, and then there was a lesser bang as I was flung, my bike was flung forward into the Jeep in front of me. Uh, we should mention that you're a motorcycle rider. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I haven't driven a car since 1989. <laughs> um, so th this would have been unpleasant in a car. I, I probably <laughs> saved the Wagoneer from serious damage and possibly the uh, the Chevy Equinox that hit me from serious damage because you know she would have at least taken out her uh, radiator if I hadn't slowed her down and my bike compressed I was on a, a GS 500F Suzuki uh, the bike compressed and took the impact, basically. So I, I heard the bang, and then the second bang, which is me hitting the Jeep. And the next thing I'm aware, I, I didn't become unconscious to my knowledge. That is, there, there's no gap in my recollection, except the next thing I remember is me kicking my left leg violently to get clear of whatever was holding me. Mm -hmm. um, I don't remember hitting the ground. Uh, in Carborough, the law of gravity works the same as it does most places. Um, the um, so I, I know I did, but I was wearing uh, top end leathers. Um, and helmet, although helmet didn't, to the best of my knowledge, hit the pavement. Um, I was kicking my left leg violently to get free because my right was under the bike. Um, <laughs> the lady in, in the Jeep got out and looked behind her to see what was happening, saw my, my leg kicking, yeah. and thought she'd run over me. She was just... She was horrified. You know, 65-year-old retired. I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she was... <laughs> I, I got clear and realized that what was holding me was my right leg was under the bike. It's, it was a small bike. Uh, but I, I jumped up, 
took my helmet off and shouted to the spectators, because this happened in the middle of town uh, in front of a parking lot, or the parking lot of a, an apartment house. So there are people sitting out on the grassy slope on a nice sunny May afternoon. And I, I jumped up and shouted, I'm fine. Uh, this was magical thinking. Yeah. But but I'm okay with that. Yeah. But you're, you, at least you didn't have the broken bones that didn't no. let you sustain that. Standing. No. No. I, no. I, I, the, the only, the thing I was really noticing immediately after that was um, I had tendonitis in my lower, these are calves, uh, right calf. And that's because I was levering a, a light, but it was still about 600 pounds bike off my leg. And um, I could have done this more skillfully if I'd been conscious, mm-hmm. but I, I really, I just wanted to get free. Well, what was the, what was the, the outcome of this as far as, um, you were probably banged up pretty badly at least. Uh, it, it didn't do me any good, but physical injury was not a serious problem at yeah. all. Uh, the, uh, it was in Carborough, so the woman who hit me was not cited. She did not get a ticket for crushing the bike. Mm. It was in Carborough. They they don't. They this Carborough is, is kind of like a hippie town. Oh well, Carborough is. It's, the, it's like the people that never want to leave Chapel Hill after they get out of college move there, so they can be in college perpetually. Or... Uh, it it's it's. There are people who really love it. I, I worked for the town of Chapel Hill where we were we were thoroughly competent. Uh, the Carborough administration did not have that reputation in Chapel Hill, but but by God, they were proud of themselves. <laughs> and uh, it, it also has the highest combined tax rate of any city in this, in North Carolina. So, and what you—they well, have to subsidize the farmers' market. <laughs> All those organic vegetables aren't cheap. Yes. <laughs> well, I, the uh, she was not. T- I, I incidentally was ticketed <laughs> a couple of months later. Uh, stopped at another traffic light. Mm-hmm. This time with car trying to make a left turn uh, at the head of the line. I just pulled different bike over and went around him. And as I did so, the car made the left turn, and I paused to see if the the car and the that we had been behind it wanted to go on and make its right turn as it was planning to do. But it, he let me in, so I went on through. However, the car behind me this time was a Carborough police car. So I was ticketed uh, for, well, inconvenience thing. Uh, I could have caused an accident. Well, if I had caused an accident, I had valid insurance. And their, their policy, if somebody causes an accident and has insurance, mm-hmm. is not to ticket them. Mm-hmm. So 
I, I, even so, a Carborough policeman behind you is better than a woman with no brakes. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but it is a toss-up. I mean, it, it's a closer. <laughs> uh, but well, you it, don't get squashed, but yeah, it, you get aggravated. Well, that's a, but I realized, okay. So what was the, I mean, but I mean, it's got to be a psychologically, because um, oh, I've, I've been through sort of, you know, accident, you know, they just stay with you and get you in a depressed sort of state or something. I was, I was in a miserable mental state. And what I usually do for that sort of thing is to just lose myself and work. <laughs> because I was so screwed up, I wasn't able to work normally, uh, and I, it the plotting of a book is a ten tenths process. Once I've got the plot down, it's yeah because you make elaborate plots. Yes, I do. You you work it out. Yes, um, yes, I do. But I hadn't done that yet. And this, so that that's why I'm later on the next book than I would like to be. But, yeah. but in the meantime, we do have the storm. Yes, um, yes, which which is a good book and was done by me before bad things happened. Uh, and it, it, the series seems all. Yeah. There's there's many many Drake things in here, and it reminds me of of some maybe the one of the fantasy series more in its tone uh, because it's a little bit lighter in a way than um, than some of the. It, it's not that it, it's not that it's light, but it, it's light for you. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Just, <laughs> I, so, I've been known to say Redliners is is a pretty hard book for me. Yeah, <laughs> that would be pretty hard. It, it was, it was. So. Well, it it freaked Tony out when she read it yeah. in manuscript. So the maybe we could say where we are and maybe tell, like, bring us up to speed where we were from what what happened in the spark and where do we start the storm? Um, I, I, you know, we can talk about the um, the milieu, which is fascinating. Um, we can talk about the characters, of course, we will, um, but. Um, Probably the best thing to do would be to just say where where do you start when you start this book? And I, it seems to me a book you could start um, reading and then go back and read this book. Uh, yeah, I I began writing professionally with short stories in magazines, and you cannot assume that anybody who buys the November issue of Galaxy magazine. Uh, had read the October issue. And therefore, I have always written my stuff um, self-standing. I mean, anything I write, and this includes the second book of a trilogy, uh, you ought to be able to read any of them uh, without knowing that there was anything else in the series. Uh, and when I wrote The Spark, there wasn't anything else in the series, and I wasn't sure. That one was really different. And I wasn't sure I was going to be able to pull it off. Um, I, I think I did. <laughs> I was very pleased with it 
when I'd actually finished it, but I wasn't counting on that until I'd finished it. And um, it takes a kid from the backwoods, in effect, uh, in a completely ruined universe. And by universe, I mean there are large, small to large chunks of consensus reality that are completely separated from one another. The only connection is a road which can be walked on, uh, ideally with using the eyes of an animal which sees things that yours don't. And it's the road, even. It's almost a platonic sort of road thing. Yeah, the, yeah. Uh, it, uh, what I had in mind, of course, was Europe in about 700 AD when Rome and the Roman Empire had been completely destroyed. Uh, Roman, well, civilization had been replaced by German culture, and which means leaky roofs and uh, everybody's illiterate. And a serious lack of vegetables. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, the, um, but there were still the Roman roads and aqueducts to a considerable degree that still worked. And this continued to connect and frequently serve the, um, the scattered chunks of Europe. Uh, and what you had in between tended to be uninhabited forest um, or inhabited by people who didn't want to be seen for good reason with um, where there was anything in the way of authority around. Uh, if you read fairy tales, um, folk tales, uh, notice how many of them involve kids being taken into the forest and left or kids being grabbed by bandits, you know, a gang of bandits that is laring in that chunk of forest. Um, this was a reality that people lived with. Uh, and I was trying to bring that sort of a milieu, but using the legends of, of, that, of the Dark Ages, may as well call them Dark Ages, because they were, they really were, uh, from which the Arthurian myths have arisen. But going back not to Mallory, but to the earliest Arthurian material, uh, which, you know, Cretin de Troyes and, um, oh, the prose Lancelot, this sort of thing where they're using a fanciful milieu in which great heroes do things. 
in, you know, <laughs> terrible. Um, and there's a, the motivation is, is a civilizing. Yes. Motive. Let's get out of the. They, the people who want to organize things again, my, my Arthur, my Lancelot, my, not actually my Merlin, but he's, these are not the major characters. The character is this kid who wants to join the, the civilizing effort and his mentor, uh, Guntram, who's a Blaze equivalent, if you, B-L-E-Y-S, if you want to go back to the Arthurian archetype. He's, he's not a Merlin equivalent. Blaze is the man who taught Merlin. And uh, the, um, the result is you have this kid learning. He's got talents. He's from the sticks. He is from the sticks. He's got real problems with civilized, cultured, life uh he he doesn't get it literally but you know he wants fine to fit in but he doesn't and he knows he doesn't and so he he goes out to right wrongs and to help widows and orphans and anybody else who needs the help of civilization and he is the face of civilization and in this case, uh, and this is Pal. Um, yep. He's not. He's not a fool. Um, no, no. <laughs> he's, he's in, and this is not. Um, things don't. It's not like he. He, be, he, he. It's not a trip to him becoming a cynic. He. Um, it works. Um, he actually is is really smart. He's just. Um, he has a strong morals code, and he. He goes with it. He recognizes not everyone around him is like that. <laughs> yeah, and they, they will certainly inform him if he hadn't figured it out. But that but he's, he's not a fool. Yeah, he, he's not trying to change them. He's just trying to change the things that are wrong. And people robbing other people are wrong. And he'll do something about that if he can. And he has certain skills. He uh, has considerable two, skills. Two main skills. Which is, <laughs> one, he's a maker. Um, yes. So what about the, the, this is not magic. This is super science, right? The, this is mentally controlling the atoms of objects to, in large measure, to return them to the condition they were before they broke down. This is the the leavings, the the fragmentary leavings of the previous civilization, which may not have been human. You know that that's left open, and it's it's not, not entirely clear that our characters are human entirely either. Oh, that's Although certainly a possibility. Like humans. Yes, and and they they think in largely human terms, but these vary from 
So yeah, and, and there are things out there which are not human. Uh, again, here I was playing a lot off Kretian. Uh, Yvain, uh, who was known as the Knight of the Lion, because in the, the course of his wanderings in the, the forest of Broceliande, um, <laughs> which is something that Proust picked up on. And the, uh, if you read Swan's Way, you'll see Proust's mention of imagining that he's not simply traveling to his uh, aunts and I think Normandy, but that he's traveling through the, the ancient forest of Broceliande, which is from Chrétien. It, it is not a geographical fact, although it may have been something that Chrétien thought was a geographical fact. Kind of the, 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 the um, oh, what do you call that? The, the, the collective unconsciousness of France. Yeah, thing. yeah. The, the dark woods of the old way. Yes, answer. yes. Yeah, but in this case, um, the, the the objects that they use and that they make mm -hmm. are they make them into something like swords and shields. Yes, but they are like pocket knives when they carry them around. Uh, yes, uh, or in some cases, large electric drills. But yes, uh, they, these are portable objects. So they're super cool because you can carry your, your night stuff in your pockets. Yeah, well, uh, Pal can because he's got very high quality, very lightweight work. Um, as, as a general rule, uh, bigger men, and it is mostly men, because this is a mental thing, and the people who built them to begin with uh, had certain it it is not clear whether the the fact that most but not all uh, women cannot use these weapons is deliberate or if it has something to do with the, the chemistry at some level beyond anything that anybody in pal's day knows and you know they just accept it um but yeah um pal's got very handy equipment most people's equipment isn't as handy but his main advantage is that he knows his equipment in a fashion that people who aren't makers aren't wizards if you will don't know theirs and they don't know his so it, it gives him an advantage over people who think he's going to pull out something truly amazing out of his hardware, and he's not. But they don't know that. He is going to use it very intelligently, though. Yeah. And he's able, because he's worked so much with the stuff, he also understands his opponent's uh, yeah. weaponry, perhaps better than they do. Sometimes. Yes. Yeah, yeah m mostly people who are effective fighters uh, aren't conscious of what makes them effective fighters. Uh, they, they have natural talents, 
and you know these are absolutely real but they don't know how they do it they just do it pal has to think he has less natural talent if you will in that sense than some of the other top people but he knows what he's doing and that that's that's an advantage and the feel of the feel of the world is that there's this is recovery of an ancient past that's golden age that mm -hmm. they don't really even understand that yeah. it's only partially visible to them they haven't gotten to history they mm -hmm. they really have no idea what the hell happened or or yeah and neither does the reader by the way yeah yeah, yeah. And it's fun for us in that way and we want and it's a mystery for us to solve as well in a way although i don't think you're ever gonna tell us well <laughs> you're not gonna lay it out but, i i'm not planning to but yeah. hey you know <laughs> but what all right so the milieu is then this the road and the road is um it's hard to i'm picturing it when i'm reading as um it's almost like I'm walking along. I'm like an aphid walking along a rose bush uh, vine. That's very good. Like yeah, that. yeah. Uh, squash vine, really, uh, squash. because it keeps branching. But yeah, yeah, yeah you're you're absolutely right. Um, it, and it is it interconnects sort of worlds that are that have different uh, settlements and diff and sometimes even different uh, uh, physics and such. Yeah. Although generally they're they're inhabitable and yeah they they tend to be fragments of consensus reality of varying size. Uh, there is the clear statement that there are portions of the universe that are connected by the road, but are not actually consensus reality. Uh, they are not here as opposed to here for consensus reality. Uh, not here has different rules, different physics, uh, very different um, occupants. However, humans can't actually go there, but they can meet the different occupants, the occupants of not here on the road. And it's generally a, a bad result for one side or the other when that happens. There's a real sort of feel to me of, of, the, of the Celtic, uh, the Celtic uh, other world uh, to these sorts of creatures. And, and you call them beasts sometimes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, the humans refer to them as beasts. Uh, they're they're not beasts, but um, and there's also a sort of Lovecraftian. Well, there <laughs> there there are things that are are not in any sense civilized or intelligent that live there also that live off the road, not necessarily in here or not here or any particular place. But there are things out there that are really very hostile to any living thing. And they threaten, uh, and, and this is one of the things champions do. Yeah, to yeah. Fight these. Fight monsters. These things. Yeah. 
Yeah. And there's one other component, which is the wilderness, uh, right? Yeah. Which is what? Uh, you need a dog to go there. That's <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the waste is the area between. The yeah. Yes. The, well, the wilderness is is th this is the area between nodes of consensus reality and off the road. This is basically the deep, dark forest. And you can go into it, and as long as you find your way back, you'll be fine. You can behave normally. Uh, but your convection cooling fails. You, you can go there for as long as you want, as long as you can live, but eventually you will overheat and die if you don't get to somewhere real. Um, and uh, you can find lots of leavings from the forerunners, the previous race, that makers can then turn into useful stuff there, you know, just prospecting. But you are sort of prospecting the way a miner in Colorado would have to chip an awful lot of rock to get enough gold to pay for his grub. And uh, chances are he wouldn't. So that's why most of the folks who were looking for gold uh, panned for gold in stream beds where the water had already broken up the rock mm -hmm. and, you know, brought the uh, flakes of gold down along with the gravel. Uh, and for the most part, that's where folks who want to work with the ancient artifacts get them. They've been, in effect, washed up on the shore of someplace that's ex that is consensus reality or a road. So you can find them alongside roads. If you go out into the waste, you may find something really strange and wonderful. But you better be able to get back on your own. And you'll, you'll probably find nothing um, except possibly the body of somebody else who didn't get back. This is something Powell's particularly good at. Yeah, he, yeah. He's, because of where he grew up, he's... Yeah. There was nothing, so... He's comfortable with, with going out in the waste and getting back, although he's always careful. Because yeah. he knows how to do it without getting himself killed. Is the... Yeah. So why does he need the dog? Uh, a dog's senses are different from human senses. Uh, it doesn't actually help a lot in the waste, although dogs do seem to have better senses of direction for getting back. But on the road, 
they the dog sees more and in combat having a dog and a dog senses with you give you the capacity to move much faster in the area of the combat. This is because there's a mental connection between yes. the champion and the dog or the... Yeah, a, a, a human and a dog. It, it's something you build. Uh, you, you grow up with it. And um, there's nothing exceptionally unusual about it. Uh, but you've got to try and do it. You, you've got to work at this. Uh, anybody who's owned, owned a dog... Uh, knows that there is a getting used to each other. And there are dogs who... My experience has been dogs will always listen to you. They will not necessarily do what you want them to do, but they know perfectly well what you want them to do. And they will, if they're a hound, they'll probably do anything they damn well please. You know, not, not vicious or anything like that, but... Uh, you, you have to be in tune with your dog to be able to use. But this guy, I mean, they, he, Pal is able to see out of the dog's eyes. He's yes. able to project yes. inside the dog. I mean, if I projected in my dog, I probably want pizza all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well. That's what he does. He lays there and then begs. But uh, mm -hmm. some dogs are more active. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I'm not yeah. saying that you will be able to, it, you will not necessarily cause the dog to think like you. The fact that he will be using his senses in a fashion and you may train him to use them in a fashion you wish. <coughs> and pal, in this, um, in the storm, he actually is uh, using a new dog, and um, that, <laughs> that dog doesn't want to do some stuff. Yeah, yeah. The, the dog wasn't raised the way one from the, the, the pals used to. a good country dog. Yeah, you know, it, it, no, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. Yeah. Um, you know, there are dogs who simply don't like to get wet. Um, and... That's something you better know before you need to swim to an island with him. And that's what Pal runs into. Um, you know, it, it's it's a great dog. It's a brave dog and all that sort of thing. And no, he's not going to go into the waste. And if Pal insists on doing that, he can damn well do it himself, which, you know, he does. But, yeah. but he's not happy about it. That was part one of a two-part interview with David Drake talking about the storm. Part two will be available next time on the podcast. Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. 
Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts. Until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them, he united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. It took Rada 20 minutes to get to the Lord Archivist's office. She walked fast, but the central library was just that big, and it wasn't laid out in a very convenient fashion. In a nation based upon laws, they all had to be collected somewhere, and after hundreds of years of additions to make room for all of the new regulations, decrees, and studies, the library was probably the biggest building in the world. Despite the library's vast size, she only passed a handful of people on her journey. Because information was valuable, access to it had to be strictly controlled for everyone's safety. Her order was kept small, and approved visitors were rare. Once she got to the Lord Archivist's office, she didn't wait for the secretary to announce her, but rather just barged right in. The secretary was used to that and didn't even try to slow Rada down. The head of her order was sitting at his desk, smoking a pipe, reading a letter, and seeming rather annoyed. What is it now? He looked up. Oh, hello, Rada. What brings you up from your warren to the sunlight of the top floor, my dear? I've come to yell at you. Ah, excellent. I should have my underlings thwart you more often, as that's the only time you care enough to visit your poor, lonely old father. He put his pipe down and placed his hands on top of his desk, as if preparing himself for important news. So, what has provoked your outrage this time, daughter? Ink that is slightly too blue? Lantern oil that creates too much smoke? Your cheap oil may have shaved fewer notes from your precious budget, but it caused a premature yellowing of valuable papers, and the law mandates black ink for inventory forms, Rada stated. Her father grinned. And such fanatical attention to detail is why you will someday be the one sitting in this chair, listening to junior librarians complain about paper cuts. Your mother and I are very proud of your accomplishments, Rada. If you bothered to dine with your family occasionally, you'd probably hear that once in a while. Come outside for once, child. We miss you. The library has been here for 500 years. It will probably still be here tomorrow. Outside meant people. And Rada didn't like people. 
Books were much easier to deal with. This is serious. And so is finding you a husband. I tell other families that I have another daughter of marriageable age, and they don't believe me, because no one outside of the library ever sees you. It is said that spotting Radamantha Nims Darhaben is like witnessing a mythical creature, like a unicorn or a whale. The legends say that whales were fat. She really didn't want to talk to her family, but she was willing to make sacrifices for her duty. Fine. I'll come to dinner. Excellent. We'll see you tonight. I'm very busy. I was thinking perhaps tomorrow. Tonight it is. So what can I do for you, senior archivist? My section has been assigned an important duty by a special committee of judges, and I require access to the restricted collection to continue my research. Hmm. Her father scratched at his beard. There were crumbs in it. Those books are controlled for important reasons. The age of kings was a time of madness. I'll file an official request if I have to. It's very important. The foundations of the law were laid during a very turbulent era. Sadly, when you get that far back into the writings, even those from the early part of this age, reason and science were intermingled with religious fervor. And we all know no good can come of works polluted with lies. What? Good are books that no one is ever allowed to read. Talk like that can cause trouble. The Inquisition burned anything they thought was too dangerous long ago. We were lucky they allowed any questionable writings from that time to survive at all. So it is best not to even remind them that part of the library exists. But you do raise a wonderful philosophical question. Let's save it for dinner. In the meantime, it would still be best if you limited your research to more contemporary writings. Rada appreciated his concern, but it was her nature to continue pushing. That's the problem. The newer records are incomplete. Incomplete? Those were fighting words to the Lord Archivist. Impossible. Some of the items on the catalogue are missing. More than likely, they're just shelved in the wrong place. That was insulting. That had to be the sort of thing that the warrior caste got into duels over. Nothing in my section is ever shelved in the wrong place. I've checked and rechecked. They're gone. Minutes of debates, prior studies on this topic disappeared. And I'm afraid a few books, she leaned forward conspiratorially, have been defaced. Salt water. It was rare to hear profanity out of her father, but books were her family's life. What kind of vile scum would harm a book? Several pages were torn out of each one. I can't say when this happened. It's been decades since these were last inventoried, but each time the pages that were taken were related to the same topic. The only reason I found them at all was because of this assignment. Her father was obviously concerned. Damaging library books was a serious crime, punishable by death. And what is this research topic of yours? I'm to find if there are any potential legal ramifications for eradicating all the casteless non-people. 
It was odd. Unlike most in their order, her father was of such high status that he actually had windows, so he had the darkest skin of any librarian Rada knew. During the summer, he could almost pass for a worker. She'd never seen him turn pale before. Father looked as if he was going to be ill, and for a moment the hands on his desk were actually being used to steady himself rather than for show. Are you all right? I'm fine, Rada. He lied. He was clearly not. I didn't know you were working on that project. I thought that was assigned to senior archivist German. German's an imbecile. He's a political obligation because his family donated enough money to add a wing to the library. I'm not entirely convinced he's even literate. I traded assignments with him. He's lazy, so it was easy to convince him to swap. Her father took several deep breaths to compose himself. You shouldn't have done that. I thought you'd be proud. While German's section is researching legislation pertaining to irrigation and soil erosion for some minor house court, my section is helping the presiding judge. It's obvious which one is the more important job. And on some subjects, doing a thorough job results in punishment rather than a reward, he muttered. Agitated, he drummed his fingers against a desk. This isn't good, Rada. Not good at all. There are plenty of scribes working on this issue. It will be enough without delving into ancient history. For your report, just use what you already have. Pay no mind to the rest. It is of no concern. I can't- No concern! He shouted. Rada flinched. Her father hadn't raised his voice to her since she'd been a child. Why are you yelling at me? I'm sorry. Just finish your report. I'll take care of noting the damage on the inventory. Stay away from the restricted collection. If the committee cares so much, they can ask the historians. But my report would be incomplete. There seems to be something dating back to the founding of the law concerning the castless that's missing. As it stands, the law mandates their continued existence, but why it requires this is confusing. I'm supposed to provide a historical context. I can't turn in a flawed report to the judges. It'll bring dishonor to the library. That's on my head, not yours. I'll sign off on it. That would be dishonest. Leaving out information was the same as lying. She'd learned to be a scholar from her father, and academic honesty always trumped all other concerns. So this was a very troubling conversation. Do you know what was on those missing pages? Of course not. It was probably vandalism, nothing more. It seems too much of a coincidence for it not to be sabotage. You know what? On second thought, forget the report. You're done. Her father was extremely agitated. Normally, he was a very calm and rational man. This was Gurman's assignment, not yours. And you were wrong to take it. I'm giving it back to him. Father! That's final. Go do your report on watering plants or whatever it is. I'll hear no further argument. Fine. 
she stood up and stormed away, planning on giving his office door a good slamming. And then she noticed something on the wall. Come back here! Her father turned to his writing desk and rummaged about for supplies until he found a scrap of paper. Using a fine glass pen, he scribbled a quick note. Rada became nervous. She'd never been officially reprimanded before. Her record was spotless. He passed it over, but she couldn't even read it without her glasses. Give this reprimand to Garman for shirking his duty, and count yourself lucky that you're not getting one yourself. If everyone in the government did whatever they felt like instead of what they were told, the capital would descend into madness. I'm sorry, father. The Lord Archivist got up and went around his desk to her, trying to act like he wasn't upset, but she'd never seen him so flushed and nervous before. Now, back to work, silly girl. I'll tell your mother to expect you for dinner. She accepted his awkward hug, then hurried out of the office, hoping that he wouldn't notice she'd stolen a spare ring of keys from its peg on the wall. Rada missed the family dinner that evening, because she was too busy sneaking into the library's restricted collection. She'd thought about putting the keys back and doing as her father instructed, but she was curious to see what all the fuss was about. All her life, her father had lectured about the importance of their order putting integrity above all other concerns. Archivists took no side. The capital depended on their honesty and thoroughness. Good law couldn't be built upon a foundation of bad information. So what was it about this castless problem that could cause her father to ignore such a fundamental philosophy? Rada working late wasn't remarkable to anyone, especially as she often lost track of time, fell asleep between the stacks, and was found there in the morning. So she'd waited until all of the other librarians and archivists had left for the evening, before going down to the lowest level. Just in case anyone else was working, she kept her lantern hood down so that it would only illuminate the steps right in front of her. As a senior archivist, she could go almost anywhere she wanted in the library, but it was better to avoid questions. Hardly anyone had ever descended into this section. This was part of the original building that had been added onto for hundreds of years. It was solid but ugly, and lacked any of the fancy ornamentation now common to government buildings. She'd been told that they had once stored statues from the prior ages down here, but the Inquisition had taken them all away, back when her grandfather had been nothing but a junior archivist. The only statue that was left had been too heavy to move easily, so the Inquisitors had smashed it with hammers until it was unrecognizable. But if Rada squinted just right, she could imagine the shape of the smiling fat man Grandfather had spoken of. There was a desk for a watchman, but there was no one posted there at night. The warrior caste had obligated a single old cripple to the library to serve as a guard during the day, but on the rare occasions that Rada had walked through this section, he'd been taking a nap. She put her glasses on long enough to read the visitor log at the guard post. No wonder the old soldier with one arm was usually asleep. 
It had been months since the last librarian had been let into the restricted section, and five years since the last outsider had signed in. Lord Protector Ratul. Never heard of him. Radha paused at the entrance. Going past this point meant she would be breaking a rule. She didn't think of herself as a rule breaker. If she was caught nosing around in here, she might even be questioned by the Inquisition. And frankly, those masked bullies terrified her. Radha almost turned back before she decided that she was being stupid. Nobody would know. And damn it, she was curious. She had to try a half dozen keys from the ring before finding the one that opened the heavy lock. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And the tea leaf prognostications of the cosmic force of conviviality and covert meetings to establish shaky alliances that managed to hold together long enough to avert destruction, plus gratitude and praise and thanks to David Drake, author of The Storm. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. <laughs>